On the last chapter of Lilac Wine, Art's visitation occurred, and Robert stood vigil all night long, although he did hear some music off into the distance and found himself staring at Abelia through the ivy. If you haven't listened to that episode or the previous episodes, Lilac Wine is a work in progress. Please go and listen to the previous chapters. I don't want you to miss anything. It was the summer of 1917. As America prepares to shed her blood on a distant shore, two lonely people are brought together by fate, torn apart by war, consecrated by wine. Lilac wine. Lilac Wine. Chapter 24 Abelia began her day in the solitude of the greenhouse. The heat and humidity of summer never prevented her from the work of propagating seeds and experimenting in the creation of new varietals of flowers and plants. She had a whole section of the greenhouse filled with trays of sprouting cultivars that have never felt the tender touch of another human hand, terracotta jars with dried seeds from countless propagations, and shelves of notebooks that described every detailed experiment, both successes and failures. Strewn across the desk were tomes of botany and thrematology, the works of Liberty Hyde Bailey, stacks of the Garden Magazine, and books by America's foremost gardener, Luther Burbank. She liked to work at a dirty and chipped desk under the lemon tree, the first item she started growing in the greenhouse many years ago. The lemon tree's citrus scent enveloped her as she worked at the desk. That fruit tree had provided her first success with grafting, Although most of the tree sprouts the acidic yellow fruit, it also has several branches devoted to limes and oranges as well. The pride of Abelia's greenhouse was a collection of flowering ivy plants which crept up from large pots in the northwest corner of the building and clung tenaciously to the ribs of the ceiling not too far from her desk under the lemon tree. The tendrils clutched the mullions between the panes of glass giving the appearance that the vines held the building together. Several years in the making, the ivy was the result of careful propagation and cross-pollination. She started with a common Gelsenium sepervarens with bright yellow blossoms shipped from a nursery in Texas. First, using careful selection, she was able to produce a plant more hardy to the colder environment of northeastern Iowa and with a blossom that lasted a full two weeks longer than the original. Then she crossed the plant with several other varietals, spending hours in the greenhouse carefully slicing open the flower before it bloomed, removing the stamens and carefully covering the flower until the stigma grew in maturity. She would then introduce the pollen from other plants via a fine horsehair brush. She tended to choose her pollen from plants based more on fragrance rather than color, for she so loved blossoms capable of bringing forth the butterflies and hummingbirds. 
To do so, she had varietals of ivy shipped from all over the world. The result was a fast-growing, hardy ivy with large trumpet-shaped blossoms that were light violet in color along the edge to a deep maroon in the center and emitted a bouquet not too unlike jasmine, but with a slight and sweet cherry accent. Jars of the dark seeds of this yet unnamed hybrid filled a wooden bookshelf in the corner, each labeled with the date of collection. She hoped to get the seeds included in the Burbank Seed Catalog and had written the famous horticulturalist numerous times. But he never responded. No doubt inundated with such requests, she thought. Nevertheless, Abelia toyed with the idea of creating her own seed catalog, complete with gardening tips and recipes. Although several pages were typed up on her monarch typewriter now gathering dust and an occasional fallen leaf on the far corner of the desk, that too never materialized. It was Rose who had delivered the news about Art's death several days ago. Knocking timidly on the greenhouse door, she wasn't going to take any chances. Although she didn't much believe the wild stories about Abelia's greenhouse, she stood outside the humid glass building and called to Abelia. Shortly after, Abelia went to work on her funeral arrangement. Like most of the town, she had attended the service in the Lily Spring Cemetery on Sunday morning where Reverend Finkel spoke of deluge and the washing away of sins as the mourner stood around the grave, a gentle rain falling. I so love funerals in the rain, he stated. As it is written in James 5.18, the heavens gave rain and the earth brought forth her fruit. We are her fruit and the rain provides a cleansing spirit of forgiveness. About three dozen people, all dressed in black, stood listening to the reverend's words, most clutching black umbrellas. Except Abelia. Her umbrella was bright yellow and stood out like a flower blooming in the barrens. Robert's dark gray coat was sprinkled with rain dripping from the worn umbrella he dug out of the entry room closet. It had several holes and tears, a frayed edge and what appeared to be teeth marks along the wooden handle. Abelia managed a smile when she caught Robert's eye, but he quickly glanced down at his feet, which were undoubtedly getting wet and cold in the rain. She could tell the clothes he wore were not his, but the old oversized suit he had worn the night before. He looked miserable, as most people do at funerals, to be sure. However, it was more than just grief that was chiseled on his countenance. He looked lost, alone. When he looked up again, their eyes met for a second time. He smiled, slightly. After Art's coffin was lowered into the ground, the crowd dissipated rather quickly and made their way into the church for the Sunday morning service. Abelia was sure that was the reason for Sunday funerals. Reverend Finkel enjoyed giving two sermons in one day. Forgoing the service, she turned and started way back down the path to the road and noticed Robert still standing graveside. His umbrella had not done its job as rain steadily dripped through the holes, but he still managed to smile as she approached. Not going to the service, huh? The church is that way, you know, he added with a flick of his thumb in the direction of the large brick church behind him. Not today, she replied. 
Robert glanced up to the building. The sounds of an organ floated over the grounds. The song was the familiar Air on a G-String by Bach. Henrietta Longhorn was the organist for the church. She had been playing the organ for decades and regularly refused Ellie's request to join the Lily Springs Ensemble. "'Well, I'm going,' promised the Reverend. His eyes moved quickly to the hole in the ground. "'And art,' he added. It was silent for a moment, nothing but the patter of rain and the soft organ playing in the distance. "'You knew him better than me,' Robert said at last. "'I've known art for a long time. "'I've known him for,' he paused, calculating the time, Four weeks, and from stories told by my father and uncle. I'm sure those are some great stories. I really don't remember too much. He turned and looked at the church. Sure you don't want to come? Although initially tempted, Abelia shook her head. When she had first arrived in Lily Springs, she had attended the church, but as the years went on, she found that her gardens and greenhouse provided more spirituality than Reverend Finkel and the ladies. There became nowhere in Lily Springs where she felt more out of place than the community church. She even stopped going on the holidays many years ago, and eventually Reverend Finkel stopped asking. The last thing she wanted to do was cause a scene by attending now. Suit yourself, Robert said as he turned and made his way up the stone path to the church, his shoes slipping on the wet stone. You don't know what you're missing, he added, pausing on the landing. He glanced down at Abelia before opening the door. She smiled one last time and waved. She hadn't seen Robert since. He had delivered her mail, but had not paid a visit as he had in the week prior to Art's death. They had sat a couple of times on the porch, drinking freshly squeezed lemonade, talking about the day's news, and laughing about the town's idiosyncrasies. Robert had a way of recognizing the sometimes absurd habits of Lily Springs. Tom walks Glory once around the triangle, counterclockwise every morning, and if the weather is particularly hot, he always says to a passerby, hotter than Kettle Hill in July. Every Monday, Gerald buys a tin of velvet tobacco and lazily smokes a pipe under the Civil War statue, the scent lofting over the triangle and carried downwind as Robert begins his morning rounds. Ellie cleans the pharmacy windows and then touches the nose of the wooden Indian that stands next to the door before returning inside to switch the sign to open. The Indian's nose is rubbed into a light color from years of touching. Abelia smiled and told Robert that Ellie had inherited the Indian statue from Floyd Hauser, the tobacconist, who died about ten years ago. Although she hated tobacco, especially cigars, her pharmacy kept a small stock for those in town who liked to smoke, especially Gerald. "'I can only imagine what you notice about me,' said Abelia. Robert smirked. "'Well, for starters,' he said, a small lock of hair always escapes from under your hat when you are in the garden. You never seem to notice it, but when you're working really hard, you blow it out of your eyes instead of brushing it aside with your hands. Really? I guess it's because my hands are dirty. And you make a face like this. Robert contorted his mouth into an obvious over-exaggeration and blew his lips flapping in a raspberry sound. 
Abelia laughed. I don't do that. Yes, you do. I've seen it. You've seen me do that? Well, young man, you must be spying on me or something. What do you do, hide in my hydrangeas? Not the hydrangeas, Robert replied, but those over there. The roses? I don't think so. They have thorns the size of my finger. Abelia wished now that she had attended the church service and wondered if that was the reason why Robert had not yet stopped by. She had even turned her chair slightly so she could see the gate through the panes of the greenhouse, waiting for it to swing open and Robert to come striding through carrying a package or something. She had recently ordered another record from the Dubuque Music House, and it should be arriving any day. In fact, she had placed more orders in the last two weeks than she had in the previous three months. Although she liked sitting out on the porch at night listening to music, she had not yet listened to all of the records that she had recently purchased, nor did she remember all of the titles. There were a couple of discs by the soprano, Elizabeth Spencer. She had listened to A Perfect Day, but had not yet opened Poor Butterfly. A new Billy Murray disc had also arrived. She had listened to that one the other night, plus several Beethoven pieces performed by the Victor Concert Orchestra and a new version of Ave Maria, this time performed by one of her favorite singers, John McCormack. However, she had yet to play it for fear of upsetting Rose, who was so attached to the Alessandro Moreschi version. Although she loved her Harvard, she was thinking of getting a new machine, perhaps a Victor Victrola. The newer models no longer had the horn. Instead, the sound came from inside the bass, and cabinet doors regulated the volume. In the ads, these machines looked smaller than her Harvard, thus making it easier to move around the house. She often contemplated the trip to Dubuque to look at the new models at Roshek Brothers' department store, but never did. In fact, she couldn't quite remember the last time she had left Lily Springs and had taken the trip to Dubuque. Most things she could either find in town or through mail order, which she used extensively. She bought items from Sears and from Roshek's. It was probably about two years ago when she did take the train to Dubuque to buy some new linen for the house. She ended up buying much more, of course. It was then that she realized her outfits were horribly outdated. She bought several new waist skirts. She liked the ones with pockets. Several new blouses, a spring coat, a new gardening hat, gloves. She even ventured into the lingerie department and purchased two new under muslins. Simple, plain white. The walk from the depot was arduous, and she realized she must have looked ridiculous carrying all of those bags through town. Art had noticed and offered to help. She politely refused and went on her way. Abelia was putting new soil into small terracotta pots, stacking them neatly on her desk. She caught herself blowing a strand of hair from her eye when the garden gate opened. Robert walked into the backyard, a square package under his arm, calling out her name. She hurriedly wiped her hands on an old cloth, straightened her skirt, and threw open the door to the greenhouse. Oh, there you are, he said. It's going to be a hot one again, and I didn't want to leave this on the porch. Another record, huh? Yes, thank you, she replied, taking the flat, heavy cardboard package from his hand. You must be one of their best customers. Which one is that? Abelia smiled. I saw an ad for this one, brand new. It's like a brass band gone crazy, it said. Come on. She turned and headed up the porch steps untying the rough hemp string from around the package. Robert followed, removing a straw hat on the shade of the porch. 
Abilio offered him a seat and disappeared into the house. How about some lemonade? She called out as the door closed behind her. She returned quickly, carrying a tray with a pitcher and two tall glasses. After pouring the lemonade, she started to sit. Oh, the record, she remembered. She soon returned, pulling the black disc from the sleeve. The Harvard was at its place on the table with Ave Maria still on the platter. This is a record by the original Dixieland Jazz Band, she said as she switched the discs, carefully setting Alessandro Moreschi on a stack of records next to the talking machine. Jazz Band, huh? Robert said setting the glass that was already dripping with condensation on the table. I read about a jazz band playing at a cafe on the south side last year. Never went, but I know they were very popular. Came up from New Orleans. I don't know anything about it. This is called Livery Stable Blues. Abilia placed the disc on the platter. She then cranked the machine and let go of the brake, the gold Victor label quickly becoming a blur. Ready? she said with a smile. I have to warn you, the ad stated that this music can inject new life into a mummy. Abelia let down the tone arm, static as the needle settled into a groove. Then, a cacophony of sound. Coronet, clarinet, and trombone in a burst of noise, shrill and disorganized. Then the trombone took up the beat as the crowing coronet voiced the melody. Soon the clarinet took up the tune, carrying it above the other instruments. It was ostentatious, full of life and energy. The pattern repeated several times, then a brief pause, and the coronet whinnied like a horse, the other instruments following with a moo and a cock-a-doodle-doo. Abelia smiled. Robert was tapping his fingers on the top of the table, his lips in a slight grin. He had short sideburns, but hadn't shaved that morning. Stubble dotted his chin, but his cheeks were relatively smooth. His hair had been neatly combed, but his hat had left a slight crease along the hairline. He hadn't used a pomade today, and as he bounced his head ever so slightly to the beat of the music, strands of hair fell loose and rested upon the crest of his ear. Sweat beaded his forehead, and when he casually wiped it with the back of his hand, his eyes moved to hers, and he smiled. Abelia quickly averted her gaze, the warmth she could feel in her cheeks. There were several more instances when the instruments took on the sounds of a barn. After each whinny and moo, the tempo picked up pace, the sound became more intense. The music was fun and lively, unlike anything Abelia had in her collection. More than the music, she enjoyed watching Robert. In light of everything that had happened in the last week, it was good to see him smiling. She wondered how he was getting on, living in that house alone with all of those dogs. The song ended with a brief coda, static, again. That was a lot like the music Billy and I heard on the boat, Robert said. Let's listen to the other side. 
Just as Abelia was about to flip the record over, Rose called out from her window, Abelia, what was that noise? Speaking of reviving mummies, Robert said with a grin, Abelia moved to the edge of the porch. It's called Jazz, Rose, a jazz band. Like it? A what? Robert whispered from behind. Tell her it's an ass band. That'll get her goat. Abelia aimed a shush in Robert's direction and then cupped a hand to her mouth. A jazz band, she repeated, louder this time. Rose was barely visible from behind the screen in the upper story window. That was music? Yes, Rose, it's very popular right now. Robert set the needle on the other side of the disc. The Dixie Jazz Band One Step blared from the horn, startling the two of them. It was a boisterous melody, more shrill and clamorous than the previous song. Who's there with you? yelled Rose. Abelia ignored her and turned. Robert was standing, swaying back and forth to the rhythm and tapping his foot. You can't listen to this and sit still, he shouted over the music. Abelia leaned against the railing, watching as Robert shimmied forward and held out his hands, offering a dance. Abelia smiled and shook her head. Come on, he insisted. I don't think so, Robert. Her cheeks were warm again. Robert moved closer, and she felt as if her heart had become an instrument in the band. I don't, she began. Don't worry, I don't know how to dance either. She timidly placed her right hand in his and placed the other on his shoulder. His hand was warm and clammy, and she could feel his hot breath on her neck. She swallowed as his other hand found her waist. Ready? he said into her ear. All she could do was nod. Soon they were swaying to the music, two bodies awkwardly trying to navigate the porch. It was not at all graceful. They bumped into the table once, the needle jumping back a few grooves. He stepped on her foot. Sorry, he breathed into her ear. But it was exhilarating. Abelia was soon smiling. They both let out a laugh. The heat, the garden, the porch, Rose, who was undoubtedly trying to spy through the wall of vegetation, all became inconsequential. Robert concentrated on not stepping on her toes anymore, and Abelia tried anticipating his moves, both failing miserably. They spun, attempting to waltz to a song that was not at all a waltz, but it was all that either of them knew, and it was clumsy. But both of them were laughing, and a tangible joy could be felt on that porch at that moment. As the song ended, Abelia spun out of Robert's arms, catching the edge of the table. She stood out of breath, looking down at the spinning black disc, the needle doggedly bumping up against the label. She lifted it, feeling like she had never felt before. Alive. Very much alive. And she knew what she wanted to do. Before she could change her mind, she pulled the brake on the talking machine and turned. Robert, 
she said, her voice shaky and out of breath. Would you like to have dinner with me on Saturday? The words came out very fast. A strand of hair had fallen loose from under a hat, and she blew it from her eye. Robert smiled. I would love to have dinner with you. Great, Abelia let out of breath, surprised, not so much by his answer, but by the courage that she was able to muster to ask such a question. She pushed the tussle of hair back under her hat and straightened her skirt, suddenly a little embarrassed by what had just happened. I've uh, never, she stammered. I, I hope I wasn't too forward. No, not at all, he said. I haven't had a good meal in who knows how long. I figured as much, and with everything you've been through this last week, it's the least I can do. Robert reached down for his hat and fumbled with it in his hands before placing it back on his head. Thank you, Nabilia, for the invite. I look forward to it. Is six o'clock good? Robert muttered in the affirmative, and there was a brief, awkward silence as both contemplated the unexpected turn of events. On the one hand, they both wished to drop the needle on the record and dance until they no longer had any energy at all. But on the other hand, each slowly recognized the implication of what this all meant and wondered if the other felt the same. I better get going, Robert finally said. Gotta feed the dogs. He stepped down from the porch, but stopped on the lawn. Thanks for the lemonade and the dance, Abelia. We'll have to practice some more, don't you think? Abelia nodded and watched as Robert turned the corner. An audible gasp came from Rose's house, and Abelia knew that things just got a little more complicated in Lily Springs. was, I believe, my longest chapter yet. About 3,600 words. I usually write short chapters, but the thing I really liked about that chapter was writing from Abelia's perspective. I love writing from her perspective. I love getting into her head. And uh, this going back and forth is going to change a bit because there's going to be more and more chapters when Robert and Abelia are together. So uh, I'm going to have to develop a means to try and deal with, you know, the two perspectives that we have there. Uh, lots of history again in this chapter as well. It begins in Abelia's greenhouse. And so this is where I'm trying to show that uh, perhaps I know something about seeds and about plants, and I know nothing <laughs> about those things. But I had, to, I had to do a lot of research. I had to research about, you know, uh, this has been mentioned before in previous chapters with her grafting abilities. I had to, you know, look at period 
articles and you know, period books and things that Abelia would have in her greenhouse. I learned about Luther Burbank and Liberty Hyde Bailey. I read countless amounts of the Garden magazine, all things that I put into Abelia's greenhouse there. And so we have that. And Abelia, of course, Reminiscing over the last week, a little worried that she hasn't seen Robert, thinking about the funeral and so forth. But, uh, you know, the highlight of this chapter for me is the music. Um, I recently restored a 1920 Victor Victrola, and I have a copy of the original Dixieland Jazz Band and that very first disc. That disc came out in 1917, and it's the first ever jazz recording by the original Dixieland Jazz Band, which is a very unique record. Now, jazz, as it will become known, was invented by African-American musicians down in New Orleans in Storyville, the Red Light District. And what's interesting is the original Dixieland Jazz Band was made up of white guys, mainly Italian immigrants, basically taking the stuff that was being played for at least a decade in the African-American community down there and introducing it to the world. Now, what's interesting is why them? Why not some of the other black players? Most of the black players were self-taught and um, they didn't want their techniques to be copied. So they were very leery about recording for fear that their stuff would be taken. Not only that, you got segregation, you got racism, these record labels weren't about to 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 record at the time African American musicians for general release. And so the history of jazz, which up until this point is exclusively for the most part an African American invention, suddenly gets this disc that becomes really popular by a white band. And that's really the history of music in America. All popular music in America, popular music from, you know, uh, jazz and blues, you know, to pop, to, you know, rock and roll, all began in the African-American community. That's where their roots are. And so you have co-opting that has happened over and over and over again in our history. So I loved being able to play that song. That song is a bit of history. They were uh, called a jazz band, and uh, no one knows really why it went from jazz to jazz, jazz to jazz. Uh, there are like some great stories. One story is that uh, a poster that said the original Dixieland jazz band was vandalized and the J was removed and... <laughs> Uh, and it said the original Dixieland ass band, and so it, it, they changed it to, to jazz to try and avoid that. Jazz is also a vulgar term for ejaculation. There's a lot of sex connotations in jazz music to begin with. 
Jazz music began in the red light district of Storyville, where everything was legal. The city published a brothel guide with pictures of of, of the women in the brothel. So there's just a lot of stuff there, and it's really, really fascinating. And everything that Abelia said about the ad that she had seen, that it would revive a mummy and you know how lively the music was. This was a disc that was advertised in such a way, and it was extremely, extremely popular. And it helped fuel the jazz age that is going to be the 1920s. And so here, here they are, <laughs> listening to it on Abelia's porch. And I just really love the idea of Abelia and Robert trying to dance and they're both clumsy awkward but they're having so much fun to music that they've never heard before and i just love that image of them dancing there on the porch so the next chapter is going to be the end of this season i've decided to break this up into seasons because the next chapter is the last chapter that I have written. So we're going to go on hiatus as I begin to write just a little bit more and try to release them as we go. And it's a shocking ending. So stay tuned for that one next week. or Actually, in two weeks, uh, we'll get that out to you. In the meantime, I've got my shirts, making my shirts. I'm going to Start giving them away. So go to lilacwinenovel.com to figure out how you can possibly get a free Lilac Wine shirt. Until next week, I am Bruce Janu. Thanks so much for coming along with me on this ride. Hope you are enjoying it. If so, please tell your friends. Uh, anyone who likes period writing, historical fiction, love stories, because this is essentially what this is. It's an eccentric love story, but a love story nonetheless. Let them know. I appreciate it. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time around. Lilac Wine is written and produced by me, Bruce David Janu. All content is copyrighted and cannot be used without expressed written permission. The podcast is produced by Bell Book and Camera Productions, my production company. Visit bellbookcamera.com for more information. Connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter as well. We can be reached via email too at comments at lilacwinenovel.com. Com. The intro voiceover was provided by my colleague and friend, Rachel Vissing. All music and sound effects are licensed through Audioblocks, except in this episode, we do play two jazz recordings from original 78s that are in the public domain. 
please visit lilacwinenovel.com to join the discussion, ask me questions, make comments. The purpose of Lilac Wine, the podcast, is to discuss the creative process. Your comments and suggestions are greatly appreciated. Thank you for listening. Thank you.